crowd was a little thin, so before worship started, he, he got up in the pulpit and encouraged everyone to, to move to the, the forward center part of the auditorium so that they could be closer together, their singing would be uh, stronger, and so on. And the first song the song leader decided to lead that day was, I Shall Not Be Moved. Well, the next Sunday, the preacher decided to speak on the subject of giving. And he, he talked about the fact that we should be generous and cheerful givers when it comes to our resources. And that, that all of us should take seriously the responsibility of giving. And so the preacher, after the, I mean, the song leader, after the sermon, got up and led, Jesus paid it all. The Sunday after that, the preacher decided to speak on our words and how we need to be careful with our words. And we, we need not to be quick to speak and that sort of thing. And, and that, that we need to be very choosy with the things we say and, and how we use our language. And the song leader got up and led, I love to tell the story. Well, that evening, the preacher was quite frustrated. And so he, in his sermon, told the congregation that he was thinking about resigning. And so when the invitation song came, the song leader led, Oh, why not tonight? <laughs> the next Sunday, the preacher informed the congregation that he was, in fact, resigning. And told them that, that it was the Lord who led him to that particular congregation. And he believed the Lord would lead him to his next uh, position at another congregation. And so the song leader got up and led the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Now, I don't believe that's a true story, but it is humorous. And it does set up this point. The point is that our songs matter. Our songs matter because they employ words that are designed to communicate our faith and praise our Heavenly Father. That's why Paul declared in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 15 that I will sing with the Spirit and I will also sing with the understanding. What's important about this passage is that these words are not original to Paul himself. He's actually referencing the Old Testament. He's basing his words on Psalm chapter 47, which is a powerful praise, praise psalm which gives the following instructions in verse 6 and 7. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises, for God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. And the point is that there is an expectation present in the Bible regarding our praise. So what I want to do tonight is spend our time studying the subject of praising God so that, so that we might possess the right mentality toward this essential aspect of our relationship with Him. And to do that, I want to begin by considering the example of the first century church. So look with me at Acts chapter 2. Because in Acts chapter 2, we're going to discover that the early church provided a pattern of devotion to praising God. See, it's in Acts chapter 2, between verse 42 and 47, in just six verses that we're given this beautiful glimpse into the life of the early church. And in those six verses, we have these statements that identify what the church was devoted to and what the church emphasized in its earliest days. 
You'll notice in verse 42 of Acts chapter 2 that the, the church was devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayers. But if you keep reading, you'll also discover that they emphasize such things as benevolence because we're told that they sold their possessions and their belongings and distributed to them to all who had need. And we can also see that they emphasized involvement because we read how they assembled, they met daily at the temple, and they broke bread in each other's homes. And toward the end of the passage, in verse 47, you'll also discover that the early church emphasized praising God. Now what is the text referring to when it says that the church was praising God? The Greek term employed here means to to praise or to extol or to sing praises in honor to God. So we're talking about worshiping God and declaring His glory through song. It's the very same activity in which the angelic multitude engaged at the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2 and verse 13. And it's the very same activity in which the shepherds engaged after seeing baby Jesus in the manger in Luke chapter 2 verse 20. And we're talking about the same activity in which one of the ten lepers engaged when he returned and fell at the feet of Jesus in thanksgiving for his healing. Luke chapter 17, verse 15 and 16. And we're talking about the same activity that the lame man engaged in after Peter and John cured his disability in Acts chapter 3 and verse 8. We're talking about the involuntary and necessary reaction to experiencing the goodness and majesty of God. Praising Him in song. And as we reflect on the fact that Luke included praising God as one of the things that the first century church was devoted to and or emphasized, there are a couple of lessons that stand out. And the first is that praising God should be prioritized. It's worth noting that according to Acts chapter 2, praising God took place among the early Christians day by day. Praising God was a daily activity. Based on the context of this passage, their praise appears to be connected to both their daily participation in worship at the temple as well as their daily fellowship with one another in their homes. In other words, praising God permeated every aspect of their life. The consistent involvement in praising God that is exemplified by the first century church in Acts chapter 2, it appears to be a first century expectation because Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15 provides these instructions. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Continually. The author of Hebrews, he compared our praise of God to a sacrifice here. He referred to praise as a sacrifice that is offered up. There were five basic sacrifices under Mosaic law. Many were utilized when you needed to seek God's forgiveness. 
But some were utilized simply to worship God. Among these, it's worth noting that burnt offerings in Leviticus chapter 1 were offered as a voluntary act of worship. They were an expression of one's commitment to God, or they were offered when one was seeking forgiveness in general, but they are associated with worshiping God. You also had grain offerings in Leviticus chapter 2 and and, and also mentioned in chapter 6. And they were offered as a gift to God when you were seeking His benevolence or recognizing His goodness. Another category of offerings were the fellowship offerings mentioned in Leviticus chapter 3 and chapter 7. And they were offered as a voluntary act of worship, expressing gratitude toward God. Whether you're talking about burnt offerings, grain offerings, or fellowship offerings, one thing stands out is that in the sacrificial system under Mosaic law, there were offerings that were intended simply to worship and honor, praise and extol God. And the author of Hebrews draws a comparison between our praise of God in song with our mouths, with the fruit of our lips, He draws a comparison between that with the voluntary sacrifices made by the Israelites in the Old Testament. But in this very same passage of Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, the author also indicated that our praise of God should be continual rather than occasional. The description provided in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5 indicates that praising God should not be an occasional activity. Sacrifices under Mosaic law were occasional activities. You employed them only when necessary. You you, you offered sacrifices on those occasions that it was commanded, or you offered sacrifices when there was something you needed or something you wanted to do for God. It, it, It just happened occasionally. But the author of Hebrews here says that our praise of God, the fruit of our lips, is expected to be offered, to be employed all the time. Maybe the first Christians who were primarily Jewish understood this expectation. Since they grew up quoting passages like Psalm chapter 113 and verse 3, which says, "...from the rising of the sun to its setting..." The name of the Lord is to be praised. Or Psalm chapter 145 and verse 2, which says, Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. You see, the lesson to be learned from our spiritual ancestors is that we should not limit praising God to the few hours during a week when we assemble for an organized worship service. Instead, We should make praising God a permanent fixture in the everyday fabric of our lives. Paul said it best in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17. This is the verse that immediately succeeds instructions to teach and admonish one another by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 17, Paul said, Whatever you do, in word or deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do. Whatever you do should lead to praising God. And I believe that the early church understood 
understood this expectation. That praising God should be prioritized. And so they engaged in it continually. In Acts chapter 2, they engaged in it when they went to the temple. And they engaged in it when they went to each other's homes. It permeated every aspect of their life. And so if we want to have the same attitude, the same mentality that the first century church had toward praising God, it needs to be something that's prioritized in our lives. It doesn't need to be something that is, in the, is on the back burner. It shouldn't be something that we just do because we have to. It should be a top priority. So let me ask you this evening, is praising God a first priority in your life? Does it take center stage in your life that whatever you're doing, God is being praised? And is it manifesting itself regularly in praise from your lips? The fruit of your lips, as the author of Hebrews would say. But the other thing we learn about praising God from the first century church, and probably the most important thing we learn about praising God from the first century church, is that praising God is not about me. I want you to think this evening with me about who benefits from your praise. Who benefits from your praise? I want you to make this very personal, very individual. Who benefits from your praise? I think there are two beneficiaries. There's a primary and a secondary. The primary beneficiary of our praise is obviously God. If you look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, Paul instructed the church to be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice here that Paul instructs us to sing and make melody in our hearts to God. God is the one to whom our praise is to be directed. According to Paul's instructions, God, God benefits from our praise because through it we are giving thanks to him. The ultimate purpose of our praise is to express our gratitude toward God. That's what we should be taking away from this passage. And that's why God is the primary beneficiary of our praise. So praising God is something to which the church should be devoted so that God is properly and continually thanked because he's the, the, the primary recipient of that praise. But we would be amiss if we didn't acknowledge the secondary recipient, the secondary beneficiary of our praise. And to do that, we need to look at Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, where Paul instructed the church in Colossae to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. According to Paul's instructions, Paul expects us to teach and admonish each other through our praise of God. Therefore, the other beneficiary of our praise is each other. The secondary beneficiary, the, the, the second one to benefit from our praise are the people with whom we're, we're praising God. 
our praise of God has this unique ability to edify, to instruct, to admonish. When we are praising God, we are benefiting each other. And it's those who experience our praise that benefit because through our praise, there's teaching, there's correction, there's encouragement. So praising God is something to which we should be devoted because through it, the participants maintain and mature their faith. So my praise is designed to benefit God and to benefit you. But neither of the passages we just looked at, either Ephesians or Colossians, identifies me as the beneficiary of my praise. That's because praising God is not about me. And I think that's what we struggle with the most. I want you to think for a moment. When it comes to the worship assembly, when it comes to the worship service and all of the things that we do in it, who's the primary one to benefit from those activities? Let's start with the sermon. Let's start with the part that consumes the largest portion of our worship. When we gather to study God's Word and it's communicated through an agent like myself, who is primarily benefiting from that? Assuming that the preacher is benefiting anyone, for the record. But the primary one benefiting from the study of God's Word is me and you. It's the individual who's listening. When we're studying God's Word, it's designed to, for our edification. It's for us. And then think about throughout the worship service, the times we engage in prayer. Now, our prayers are directed to God. Our prayers are heard by God. Our, our, our prayers are intended to be in accordance with God's will. And they're intended to communicate reverence for God. But ultimately, our communal prayers are an opportunity for us to communicate our concerns, our requests, our thoughts, and even confess our sins. So to a large degree, our time of prayer benefits us once again. And when we gather around the table to remember the Lord's death, when we partake of those emblems that represent his body and his blood, who's primarily benefiting from that? It's a memorial that we observe so that, that we won't forget what took place to secure our salvation. God instituted that memorial for our benefit. So once again, that's another activity in worship that is about us and for our benefit. But scattered throughout the worship service 
are these times in which we praise God in song with the fruit of our lips. And they are absolutely, positively not about us. They're about glorifying and honoring Him and benefiting those around us. I might be a beneficiary of your praise, but I'm not a beneficiary of my praise. You may be a beneficiary of my praise, but I'll never be a beneficiary of my own. You know what that means? That means that our time of praise requires us to be selfless. And humble. But I'm afraid that all too often we are anything but that. I'm afraid that all too often we, appro- we approach our time of praise very selfishly, and I speak as a guilty party. Because many of us treat the time of praise as an option, as something that is voluntary or secondary, rather than something that's commanded, required, and primary. We choose when we praise and when when we don't. Without calling names, though you could call mine on this, I stand up here occasionally when a song is being sung and I get to look at you And I'm astonished sometimes at the number of mouths I never see move. Our song leaders will never say it, but I'm sure they experience it too. And you know what? I know that there are times that I've been the guy not moving his mouth. And it's not because I didn't know the song. It's because my mind was somewhere else. And I know sometimes your mouth isn't moving because you don't know the song. But sometimes we keep our mouths closed because we're selfishly deciding God's not getting my praise right now. I'm going I'm to be focused on where I'm going to lunch. Or I'm going to be focused on my fantasy football roster because that thing's got to be set in about 30 minutes. Or I'm focused on what happened this weekend and, and what I'm going to have to deal with on Monday at work and all these other things. And sometimes... It's our praise that gets sacrificed because our mind chooses to go somewhere else. The one part of our worship that is intended solely for God's glory is sometimes the part we sacrifice because our mind isn't in it and our heart isn't in it. But Scripture says we should sing with understanding. That requires the application of our mind. And you know what? Sometimes we're very selfish towards our praise. And it's evidence because that becomes the part we complain about the most. I comment a lot about how people complain about the length of my sermons or the quality of my sermons. But you know the complaints I hear the most? They're usually related to the song service. 
And once again, I'm a guilty party. We have this ability to forget what praising God is all about. And we spend our time complaining we didn't like the song selection today. Or there weren't enough upbeat songs. Or the song leader was off pitch there. Ruined the song for me. Or there weren't enough of the new songs. It was all those old hymns. I want more of the new stuff. Or there were too many songs I just didn't know. You know what all those statements have in common? They're all about me. They're all focused on the personal pronoun, and they're forgetting that our praise isn't about us. It's about him. Our focus should be on what's being communicated in the song, not about whether or not it's the song we want sung. Because our praise isn't about us. If there's any message you take home from tonight, that's the message I want you to take home, that praising God is not about me. And if we will adhere to that principle, that biblical principle, it will change the way we worship for good. I want you to keep something in mind. When it comes to praising God, our mindset should not be What am I getting out of this? Our mindset should be, what am I putting into this? Because I should recognize that the primary beneficiary of my praise is not me. It is the Lord God Almighty. And I think this understanding of who benefits from praise is most evident in a midnight praise session that takes place in the city of Philippi in Acts chapter 16. Luke tells us that despite their circumstances, particularly being wrongfully in prison, chained to a dungeon floor, Paul and Silas spent the evening praying and singing hymns to God in verse 25 of Acts chapter 16. I want you to pay particular attention to what happens as a result of their praise. According to verse 26, a miraculous earthquake occurred that opened all the doors and unchained all the prisoners. Yet no one fled. Not one prisoner escaped. The guard in charge of the prison was about to commit suicide because he assumed once those prison doors came open that every prisoner got out. And he knew he was going to be executed anyway. But Paul stopped him. In verse 28, Paul said, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Then the jailer went to Paul and Silas and asked the most wonderful question anyone could ever ask. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? What had Paul and Silas done up to that point in the text of Scripture to lead this individual to ask a salvation question? Nothing that we know of other than praising God 
And shortly thereafter, that jailer and his whole household were baptized into Christ. Now, I want you to consider for a minute who benefited from the praise session of Paul and Silas at midnight in a prison cell. You might say it was them because they got the chains off their feet and ultimately got to go home. But I think if you pay real close attention, the greatest benefit was to God because souls were added to his church. Souls were saved from eternal destruction. People he loved dearly and paid the price for turned their lives over to him. And of course, that also means that those souls benefited from that praise session too. See, the story in Acts chapter 16 doesn't present the plan of salvation. There's no evangelistic sermon presented in that jail cell that night, according to the text. All it was was two men praising God with the fruit of their lips. And it changed people's lives. Because those two men recognized it wasn't about themselves. Heard a story about the Duke of Wellington. Arthur Wellesley was his name. He's actually the British military leader who defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. Apparently, he was not an easy man to serve under. He was brilliant and demanding and did not shower his subordinates with much praise. Yet even he realized that his methods left something to be desired because in his old age, he was once asked if there was anything he would do differently if he had his life to live over. And his reply was, I'd give more praise. As you reflect on your life right now, do you find yourself needing to give more praise to the Lord? Listen to the words of the psalmist in Psalm chapter 71. In verse 6 he says, My praise is continually of you. And in verse 8 he says, My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Then in verse 14 he says, But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. His praise is continually given to God, but by the end of the psalm, he's saying, I'm going to do it more and more, even though it's already continuous. Does your life need more praise? Not for you or of you, but of God. You know, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 3 describes heaven as a place where the throne of God and of the Lamb will be, and His servants will worship Him. That's one activity that we know we will be engaging in for all eternity. So why not get a head start on it right now? Tonight I challenge each of us to ask ourselves, am I 
praising God in the 21st century with a first century mindset? Is my praise of God prioritized or is it minimized? Is my praise about God or is it about me? If we're not praising God the way we ought to be, then something needs to change. And if you need to make that change tonight, we invite you to come. Repent. Start anew. And if you haven't found salvation like that Philippian jailer did that night when Paul and Silas praised God from a prison cell, if you haven't been baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that opportunity is always available. And we invite you to come to do that as well. Whatever your need is, why don't you come while together we praise God. Amen.